Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. I hope you have your Bibles with you and you are ready to turn to a lot of passages both this morning and this evening because uh, we have a lot of stuff to cover in these two lessons. Uh, I mentioned Wednesday night uh, my desire for you to pray for me because of the topic that I was going to discuss today. Uh, not because it is necessarily a, a, a controversial topic as much as it is just a hefty one. Uh, this topic comes from, I was asked a few months ago to preach on hell. And when I got to thinking about preaching on hell, I thought, well, I don't want to do that without first also preaching on heaven. And then when I started digging into the, you know, just the concepts of the afterlife, of course, that opened up five more doors of things that I needed to study, which opened up five more doors of things I needed to study. And so this is, I think, hopefully some sort of a beginning point for us to start talking about some ideas about the afterlife, but I'm not going to cover the afterlife today. I want to talk about life itself because I think it is fundamental for us as we try to dig in to what comes after this life to understand both uh, the concepts of infinity and mortality in our own world, in the physical world. So it's going to be somewhat of a, a hefty topic, and I hope that you're ready to uh, just kind of dig in uh, as we go through this. Uh, we, we know God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We, we know that passage. We're familiar with it. We're familiar, uh, I, I think, the majority of us with the whole concept of creation and the way that story is built there in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. We also know that this creation that God has created is at this point prepared for destruction. That's not hard for us to grasp when we've been in our Bible classes studying through the prophets. Uh, we see a lot of talk about destruction and day of the Lord back for those people. Uh, in that same language, those same concepts are used to talk about life in general uh, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 21, or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he, has, he also called? Now, there's a whole sermon or series just in those two verses. We're not going to dig into those in particular. Second uh, Peter chapter 3 talked about the idea of this world and what we know being burnt up and that it is prepared and that God... Every day we have on this earth is a display of God's patience, not wanting any to perish along with the world, the way the world's going to perish. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked, for the day of disaster. This is 
a common concept through Scripture. That God has prepared things for destruction. And that happens not only with God's actual involved destruction where he brings punishment and condemnation, but also that's just the way our world is going. Our world is being used up. It is naturally decaying. Uh, Isaiah chapter 51 verse 6 talks about that our world is being used up. 2 Corinthians 4 16, Psalm 102 40, or 26, 1 John 2 talked about this world and the lust in it that are soon to pass away. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14, I mean just over and over and over again, we see our world is prepared for destruction and currently even experiencing destruction. The question becomes, when did that start? When did destruction and death and things falling apart and wearing out begin? That question has a lot to do with our understanding of the afterlife, which is why when I went to prepare a sermon on hell, which then led to heaven, which then led to afterlife in general, which then led to mortality here on earth, and it just, it, it, I started working backwards going, okay, well, I've got to answer this question first. Well, I've got to answer this question before that. And so this question of when did death begin is an important question for us to dig into whenever we're talking about mortality and eternity, infinity. Was it God's intention from the beginning for things to die? It's, it's a debate that has been waging among Christianity in general for centuries. And I'm going to solve it for you today. I'm not, really. I, 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 but do you understand just how important it is to dig into these types of questions? If we're going to try to understand what's outside of our world, we need to first understand what God created in our world. It seems like that would be the easier task. I found over the past several weeks, not so much. And that's why I want to dig into it. Now, how does this understanding of death and mortality apply to our understanding about eternity after death and mortality? How does it apply to our understanding of the afterlife? I remember in college, I, did a, I had a minor in church history. And so I did a lot of reading. Because of the way college worked out for me, I had to take several of those classes, independent study. Meaning I didn't sit in the classroom and listen to the lectures of a teacher. Essentially, he said, these, it would be this many hours of you listening to me lecture, but since you don't have to listen to me lecture, you have to read this many hours worth of books. And he gave me piles of books off of his bookshelf that I needed to read, and then I would come in and have discussions with him, and he would create tests for me based on these books. And so I had to read them. And I read debates from back from the you know, 400 A.D., debates that were happening among early Christians about the nature of Jesus and the nature of the soul versus the flesh and Gnosticism and all of these concepts and ideas that have been 
plaguing the minds of Christians since Christianity existed. That debate's even happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where there's a debate about whether the resurrection has already happened or will eventually happen and what that's going to look like. Even John himself in 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, you know what, we don't have a clue what it's going to be like when we die. All we know is that we will see him as he is and we will be as he is. Talking about Jesus. There is so much that we don't know, but the Bible gives us clues about. And so when I sat down to dig through all of this, I went through my typical process. Here it is. This is the process of a biblical genius. I'm kidding, uh, completely. This is the process I go through that I fight with as I try to dig into topics that I'm less familiar with. First of all, I find all of the passages I can find that relate to the topic. That, that's always the first step, right? Go to the Bible. The second step is a lot harder. Figure out where my preconceived ideas are. Lay them out on the table because I might need to change some of them. That's a hard step. And I'll be honest, I don't always successfully do that. And I'm going to be honest, for you to hear what we're going to talk about today, you're going to need to do a little bit of that, I think, probably. After that, I draw conclusions based on the scriptures alone. Even if they conflict with what I've already believed or always heard to be true. And then I go, and in order to evaluate my conclusions, I go ask people I trust and love, and, and I say, okay, what about this passage? What does it mean? And what about this concept? What does it mean? And I take all of their ideas and opinion and their understandings of Scripture, and I weigh them against what I have thought about. And generally speaking, that brings other Scriptures in that I hadn't considered yet. And so I start digging into those scriptures and trying to do a, an honest evaluation of where I am on my conclusion. And then when it's all said and done, I've, I have to force myself to still be open to correction. I, I say that process to you for this reason. One is I want you to kind of go through the same process with me as we dig into this topic. But secondly, I want you to understand that this question is so old and it has such varied opinions on what the conclusion is that it's possible you will have different conclusions than I am going to bring you to or at least bring to you on the screen. Talk to me about it. Don't get upset about it. Don't get angry about it. Let's talk about it. Because I still am learning how to understand the things that we're going to talk about today. And, and I'll be honest, if, if I'm wrong about what we're going to talk about today, it's not going to change anything about whether I go to heaven or you go to heaven. It's just going to change the way we think about heaven. And so I, I want us to be willing to think deeply and think together deeply on some of the things we're going to talk about today. Let's begin with this. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Traditionally, that is understood when you dig through Genesis chapter 1 specifically, that God created a perfect earth, a perfect globe that, that there was no death and there was no decay and there was no disease, that everything God created was good. We can't disagree with that. It flat out says it on most of the days of creation. And then at the very end, God even pronounces that what he created was very good, right? And so most people in their conclusion have, de have decided that God created this world. He created things very good, and then he formed a garden. And in that garden, everything was perfect and everything was easy, that Adam uh, just would, essentially you'd walk through and pick a piece of fruit off a tree and you were ready to eat. And it was just an easy living, a place that, it, that we properly call paradise. God promised in that garden that if they were to eat of one particular tree that we call the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that if they ate from that tree, they would die. And it says, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Everybody with me so far? Okay, this is the traditional understanding. And that, that because or until Adam and Eve ate from that tree, there was no death. That death did not exist because sin had not happened. And since sin had not happened, there was not yet the consequence for sin or punishment for sin. Death was unknown in this perfect world. So I take a little bit of disagreement with this. And here's why. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that something being good involves no death, no decay, and no disease. We know that while God created a good existence, a good earth, and he spoke these things into existence, that in that process, he also pronounced that there was not good. Now, God fixed that right away. It was not good that man should be alone, and so God caused the deep sleep to fall on Adam. He removed one of his ribs. He fashioned that rib into woman, and that now we have Adam, or man and woman. They are later named Adam and Eve. But there was a sense in which God created was incomplete in that case. And there's a sense in which what God created involved the potential for bad. You know, God gave Adam and Eve three commands. Y'all remember what those are? We already said one, you are not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The next one was you were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth that they were to know one another as man and wife, they were to have children, and that those children were to move from the garden to the earth. And there's no reason to assume that the garden covered the earth, was the garden paradise, as a garden. And it gives a specific location between these four rivers, right? So there was a garden... And that 
Eve were set there with the job, the third job, work and watch over it. That they're guarding something in... Why do you guard something if there's no danger? Do you watch over why do you keep something safe when there's nothing to keep it safe from? But he's to watch over this garden, and then God promised death on the day that they ate from the tree. Now here's some of the difficulty with that. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. We, we often talk about that death as being physical death, that that meant that the day that Adam and Eve were to eat of that fruit, they would die, but they didn't die. But we say, well, you know, but God was kind of speaking in, in two different ways, that one was spiritual death where they were separated from God, and then one was physical death which began that day, even though they didn't actually die that day, they began the process of death. This is just the way it was explained to me. Well, the problem with some of that is that death itself is not always considered a bad thing. You know, consider some of these passages with me. Romans chapter 14, verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Kind of neutral there, wouldn't you think? A neutral idea of death. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Now there it pulls language straight out of Genesis, where it says, to dust you will return, for from dust you were taken. And there the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, yeah, your body returns to the dust, but your spirit, it returns to God. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You, know, you, you keep reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. If you take that passage with what the preacher said back in Ecclesiastes, that your body is done away with and your spirit returns to the Lord, here Paul says that's something we want to happen. That's something we're excited about. That's something that is good. That's what we would prefer. Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Does God consider death a good thing or a bad thing? I, I'm convinced it's possible that this, this concept of death might not be something that was so evil that it couldn't exist before the fall of man. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let, let's just keep plugging along here. You know, nowhere in the Bible does it actually teach that death did not exist before the first sin. 
That is an assumption that has been made based on certain theological teachings. For instance, Calvinism really depends on the idea that death does not exist before sin because they need to teach the idea of inherited punishment, inherited guilt, that Adam's sin, the death that was associated with Adam's sin, was then passed down through the generations to all who were born after him. And therefore... Death is, a, is an inherited consequence. Catholicism teaches something very similar with the concept of original sin. But none of this is actually from Scripture. The idea that death did not exist before uh, the first sin, uh, th that is something that is assumed based on the punishment and based on a lot of other ideas like the perfection of earth. Uh, and, and I think that's something we need to be very conscious of and a little bit aware of as we think about this. You know, Job says over in chapter, or, or Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do anything, he says to God, and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. You see, the difficulty is that Calvinism and some of these other theological uh, teachings teach that God created us as immortal beings and that when we chose sin, we essentially threw a wrench in the gears of God's plan and so God had to kind of enact plan B. He already had the plan, but it was plan B. Plan A was us all live in the garden paradise forever. But when we mess that up, now we've got to go to plan B because we've thwarted God's plan. Are we really okay with that concept when it's put in those terms? You see, the, the, the idea that is often talked about when we think about mortality and immortality is that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 18, when it's talking about the consequence of sin, and it tells Adam there, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. That idea of, of the world or our work, our ability to produce was fallen because the, the world had fallen. And, and they based that off of Romans chapter 8, which we're going to spend some extensive time talking about this evening. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it this morning. But the idea of a fallen world, that the whole world was affected by this first sin, that the world, uh, it, it, it produced thorns and thistles all of a sudden. God, God created new horrible things that didn't exist in the pre-sin perfect world that God created thorns and thistles later. And then Romans chapter 5 verse 12 where it's talked about that Adam brought sin into the world and because of that sin death and that death spread to all men and often left out as the last three words because all sin. But that, that idea there that Adam brought sin and death into the world, so we now have a fallen life. And we know that sin, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And so death didn't exist before Adam sinned, 
And then when Adam sinned, it caused death to everything. And so they'll teach things like death, decay, disease, destruction, even natural disasters. All of that came as a result of the first sin. That there were no hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes before Adam sinned, but when Adam sinned, God essentially just cast a curse on the earth, and therefore the earth itself was going to just be a ball of destruction and mayhem and horrible living all as a result of the fall of man. Again, I'm, I'm not sure that's really true. Here are the consequences that we have listed in Genesis chapter 3. If you look there, God speaks to the serpent first and tells the serpent that he's more cursed than the livestock and more cursed than wild animals, and he would go on his belly and that there would be a, a future punishment through the seed of woman but to the woman he tells her you will have increased pain in childbirth the christian standard bible says i will intensify your labor pains you will bear children with painful effort now first of all a little bit of a tangent but that implies that there had already been an experience of childbirth uh, for her to know what, you know, to, to have increased amounts, there has to be a baseline. Uh, and, and so it seems that there was already a, a painful labor process, but God was increasing the pain of labor. And that goes right along with the idea of when they had their eyes open, they felt they needed to cover up. Well, if they are man and wife, they don't need to cover up. Uh, I've heard some say, well, maybe they covered up because of God's presence. Eh. God sees us in every state we're in, right? Uh, so it seemed that maybe there were others around. And, and if they were, we, again, we don't know how long they were in the garden, but if they were in the garden for any length of time, what was one of their commands? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So I don't know why we would assume they weren't having children during their time in the garden or during their time where they had access to the garden. Uh, Cain had a wife to choose from in just the next chapter. Uh, and so there seems to have been other people on earth, and those people had to come from Adam and Eve because Eve is called the mother of all the living. Uh, and so it seems that they had children. They were obeying the commands until they decided to break one of them. It says, your desire will be for your husband, it tells her. I've seen a lot made out of this, and, and I actually don't really see a reason why to make a lot out of this. Uh, a lot, you know, try to say that there, this is an ill motive, that this is her, she's going to want to usurp his authority, and that's what this is talking about, that her desire is not for her husband, but for her husband's authority. Well, it doesn't really say that. All it says is, you will desire your husband, and he will rule over you. What's interesting to me about the idea of him ruling over her is that elsewhere in Scripture, that is not something that is merely a consequence of sin, but something that was put in place by creation's order itself. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that, that she was not to, a woman's not to exercise authority over a man because Adam was created first. 
And therefore, that was a principle that was already in place. I don't know that this is necessarily God saying you are going to desire usurping the authority of your husband and therefore every woman after you will desire the same thing. I don't see that. It goes on to say that the ground itself would be cursed and, and produce painful toil. But I would argue if you look over in Genesis chapter 4 verse 12, when Cain sinned by killing his brother... You look there, when God is sending or punishing Cain, he tells him, if you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. That was not a, a punishment that was passed on to all of mankind because Adam sinned. It was a punishment to Adam. Adam, when you go out of this garden and you start tilling the ground, it's not going to do a good job for you. That's your punishment. Not the punishment for all mankind, not a punishment on the ground itself, but a punishment for Adam. And that's why when Cain needed to be punished, he could be punished the same way. Because it apparently was not true before that point. Remember what Cain offered to the Lord? The produce of the ground. Cain was already a farmer. And so God made his job more difficult. You, you see there, you will return to dust. Return to dust. Oh, by the way, with thorns and thistles, I, I, there's probably six or seven other passages in Scripture where thorns and thistles are used as a punishment to a people or to a person. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 5 and 6 mention it. Isaiah 7, verse 23 through 25 mentions it. Jeremiah 12, 13 mentions the ground producing thorns and thistles for a disobedient people. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 through 8 uses it as an illustration for those who were disobedient. Uh, so again, that, that, that's something that is, that is a common punishment through Scripture, not a general punishment on all of mankind. Return to dust. Again, I think that was part of the plan all along. Here's what I mean by that. The concept of dust, when you look through ancient Near Eastern text, was always used as an illustration of something that was transient or temporary. Whenever you said something was of dust, what you meant is it wasn't going to last long. And so the whole concept of God revealing through revelation to, we think, Moses, who wrote down the creation story for us, that we are created from dust is, if you parallel it to all many other passages, both from Scripture and from the ancient Near East, it meant we were created from something temporary. We were, our bodies are made from something transient. And I don't think that's an accident. Uh, you, you, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn over there with me real fast. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. You've got this long passage where Paul is discussing the resurrection. It's interesting to me the, the contrast that Paul draws here between our human flesh in our glorified bodies. And you look through here, and you, you can read this from verse 42 down through verse 53, but I'm just going to point out a couple. Flesh is corruptible, our 
our glorified body is incorruptible. You see that in there? Our flesh is perishable, but our glorified body would be imperishable. Our flesh is dishonor. Our glorified body brings glory. Our flesh is seen in weakness, but our glorified bodies would be seen with power. Our flesh was natural. Our glorified bodies are spiritual. And then read with me there verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. Do you see that again? Like the men of dust, the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. There, Paul's contrast is saying that what we are and what we have been was a temporary arrangement compared to what we will be in the resurrection. We cannot find our hope and our, our satisfaction in dust. We find it only in glory. And so that contrast, I think, lets us see that the intention all along was for that our, our flesh was described as temporary. And that's how God intended it, our flesh to be temporary. You've got the issue of expulsion as a result of punishment. Now, that, that's not verbalized to Adam and Eve, but we see it happen with Adam and Eve, that they are expelled from the garden. And the reason they are expelled from the garden, the only reason we're really given, is that they, God did not want them to have access to the tree of life. Did they, before the sin, have access to the tree of life? Yeah. There's no reason it to think otherwise. It was right there in the midst of the garden, just like the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was there as a contrast. You can choose sin and death, or you can choose life. They weren't to choose the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but it never says to avoid the tree of life. What does God say? From every tree of the garden you can eat, except the one. Which means, could they eat from the tree of life while they were in the garden? Absolutely. Absolutely they could. But when they sinned, God kicked them out and he put an angel there guarding the garden with a flaming sword because God says he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. Now a lot of people assume that that means they had never eaten from it before or else they would live forever. But that's, that's an assumption. It seems that they were to have regular access to the tree of life in order to live forever, not one-time access to the tree of life. And God wanted to prevent them from having regular access to this tree ever again. I also wonder... If that's not the case, what was the point of the tree? If the tree was only needed if they were temporary beings, but God had created them as infinite beings before 
fall, and then God cursed their infinite or infinity and made them temporary and dying creatures, they wouldn't have needed the tree of life. And then once they needed the tree of life, God cut off access to it. So what was the point of it? Unless the point of it was that they were created with temporary bodies and therefore the tree of life was needed in order to give them longevity. And so they had access to it. They took access to it and God prevented access to it as a result. And then there's this statement, in the day you eat, you die. Through Genesis chapter 1, whenever we talk about a day, what do we mean? And again, it depends on if you're a day-ager or if you're a literal 24-hour day creation person. I, I am personally a 24-hour day person because the way, the way it's worded. There was evening and there was morning the day. There was evening, there was morning the next day. It's also interesting that when the serpent tempts Eve, you, you see what he tells her? He says, in the day you eat, you will not die. Or no, he says, in the day you eat, your eyes will be opened, is what he says. How quick did that happen? When they ate from that fruit, how quick were their eyes opened? Pretty quick, right? That was not an expression to denote after 930 more years you will die. It meant you will die. Which causes me to believe that the, the punishment, the threat that God was giving them regarding eating the piece of fruit off the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not a physical death threat because that didn't happen that day. And yes, you can argue, well, it began to happen that day. Not if our understanding of the tree of life is correct and that they needed the tree of life in order to extend their life because they were already in physical bodies that could die. And I have a hard time believing that God could be so deceitful you're going to die that day. Well, you know, I, I, I just, I kind of meant that day. I really meant 930 years of days later. That's that not in keeping with what we know about the honesty of our Lord. When he says this is going to happen and it's going to happen soon, what do we always see happen? It happens soon. And there are many times through Scripture where God gave time references for events that were going to happen. They never failed. And so I think when God says, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die, he meant it. The day they ate from it, they died. Well, but Adam, they, they couldn't, you know, and under the traditional view, they couldn't have understood that because they didn't know death. Well, maybe they did. Have you ever thought about how did you, you know, I can't tell my children that, uh, you know, punish them with something that, they, you know, threaten them with something that they don't understand. I've learned this after five children, and it's a little harder when you get a little older, and, you know, I'll threaten Maple with things, and Tiffany will have to, Adam, she doesn't know what that means. Well, I'll Gibson with it, and he's, he gets it completely. But Maple doesn't understand things Gibson understands, Right? 
to talk to Maple about a correcting of her behavior, I have that Maple will understand, right? That's the only way she truly understands the threat. Well, I think God put this in terms they could understand because they understood what death could mean and how it worked. Well, others will say, well, God just showed them mercy. God's often merciful. He often relents on his punishment. Uh, we talked about that today in our class on Amos in chapter 7, where God said, I was you know, preparing locusts. Amos begged for, for him not to, and it says he relented his punishment. He did the same thing with fire. Maybe God's just relenting on his punishment with Adam and Eve, but that's not really what people argue. They think God actually did and intended it the way that it happened, and I think he did, but I think he meant spiritual death. It's also interesting that when you, when you read past Genesis 3, death is often seen not just as a good thing, but as a merciful thing because God helps people to escape. And I, just from a logical standpoint, and again, you can take this or leave it, death happened whether we want to agree with it or not. Did plants die? I've heard people try to argue they didn't. I don't know how a plant survives mastication. That's being chewed up for our younger folks. You eat a leaf of lettuce, you killed it when you ate it, right? I mean, there's no surviving that. It does not reappear completely green and fresh, right? I mean, that, that's not the way eating works. Plants died. We, we fully admit that plants can die. I have a time believing without God's direct intervention that the insect world was all living limitlessly because you'd have a world overrun with insects. There's really no reason to believe that animals didn't die. My wife and I were talking about this this morning and she brought up, well, what about the fact that uh, you know, animals weren't allowed to eat other animals? It seems that uh, the way it's described here in Genesis uh, that animals were you know, given every plant to eat, but it never says that animals were given other animals to eat. So everything was, uh, was an herbivore. Everything ate plants only. Maybe. Uh, I don't, I'm not positive that's exactly what it's saying. But even if it were, it's interesting that when that rule is changed for Noah and his family coming off the ark, God never changes it for the animals. That, that there's no reason to believe that animals couldn't die. The punishment was that Adam would die. That's the threat. God didn't say, in the day that you eat of it, I will bring death on the world. That's not what he says. What he says is, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So even under the traditional view of how mortality works and when it began, there's no reason to necessarily believe that animals couldn't die. And I would even argue a step further that physical death, even among humankind, was a part of the original creation. It was a part of what God intended from the beginning. Ecclesiastes says there is a time to live and a time to die, 
He has created everything appropriate in its time. God created death. God created that as a part of what we experience. We're told in Ecclesiastes 3, he has also put eternity into their heart, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. He has placed in us, in each one of us, from creation, a desire for eternity. How do we have a desire for eternity if we were intended to live here forever? Does that make any sense? Unless God's plan all along was for us to escape this temporary ball of dust. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 2 and 3 says, Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean. There is one fate for everyone. God created as a part of this world the, the truth that we all experience the same fate, death. It doesn't matter if you're righteous or unrighteous, clean or unclean, we are destined for death because we were created as mortal beings. And so tradition, the traditional way of viewing all of this is that God was forced to enact a plan that brought redemption and salvation from death because man created sin. Because man started with sin. But I would argue that God's plan was eternal and therefore God's creation reflected his eternal plan. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. Romans chapter 8, 28 through 30. We know that all things work together for good, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among those many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now think this through with me for a moment. We were predestined to be a part of his plan so that he could become the firstborn of the predestined. How did he do that? through death and resurrection. If God's plan, original plan, was that we do not experience death, then how can it be that God's plan has always been that Jesus would be the first to experience the death followed by resurrection? It doesn't make any sense unless death was a part of the plan all along. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So when? Before creation. 
He chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to, the, to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the, in the beloved one. God, before the foundations of the world, planned for us to be redeemed from death. Which means death was part of the plan all along. Just over two chapters later, we're told in chapter 3, verse 11. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What, what was the eternal purpose? That Christ would die and be raised again. And that, that that death and resurrection would be what would redeem us. God's plan was to first uh, redeem us, and then second, to bring salvation, according to Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. I just, I don't understand how if God's plan was all along for us to be redeemed from what he knew we would do, why we argue that we were intended to live here forever in paradise. This isn't the paradise God intends for us. That one is. This is not the paradise God hoped for us. That one is. And any understanding of what Scripture says, that we were created to live forever here on this earth, I think is selling God's plan short. It's selling God's purposes short. God doesn't want us in these bodies forever. God wants us with him. And that's why you have passages like John chapter 14, verse 1 through 4. John 14, 1 through 4, Jesus is in the upper room. He's having a disturbing conversation with his disciples about his impending death. And he says, don't, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house. There are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. You know the way where I am going. So here's my question. When did that plan begin? When did God begin to start to desire us to live with him in his mansion forever? When did God fabricate that as his purpose? According to Ephesians, it was always his purpose. He has always desired for us to live with him. And I don't understand how arguing that we would live in these bodies immortally was ever part of that plan, could ever be reflective of what God intended for you and me and our, our ultimate destiny. Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8 starting in verse 5, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he came, was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. 
Do you see what's being said there? What we have here on this earth, even the best pieces, like a Garden of Eden where man could commune with God, or a tabernacle where man could come before his God, or a temple where man could come before his God, all of these earthly things are copies of what we have prepared for us in heaven. Because God's intention was never for us to be satisfied with trees and fruit, with a tent and curtains, or with a building of gold. God's intention was for us to join him. And all these pieces are merely a reflection of what God intended for us, what God wants for us. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 1, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? This is just a shadow. This is just a glimmer. This is just a, a, a small piece of what we have to look forward to because God intended us not to find ourselves in mortality, but in immortality and in infinity. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 5, excuse me, verse, verse 3 through 5. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest even though his work have been finished since the foundation of the world for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way and on the seventh day God rested from all his work and again in that passage he says they will never enter my rest therefore since it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news did not enter it because of disobedience. He again specifies a certain day today. Do you see what it said there? That he planned this from the foundation of the world? Notice it didn't say he planned this from the beginning of sin whenever he enacted plan B. That was never what God did. God's plan was an eternal peace. It was something God intended from the beginning. And I, I have a hard time believing his creation didn't reflect that. Tonight, we're going to dig specifically into Romans chapter 8, because that probably is the most difficult passage to deal with when talking about this concept, because there's so many questions people have about it. But I want to discuss it because I, I want us to get a sense of what God's plan really was. Because if we can understand that God's plan was not this, then maybe it can help us have the right perspective about that. And about whether we truly belong here or there. And it'll help us to understand what we should be doing while we are here and preparing for there if we truly understand just how temporary this world was intended to be 
you're not a child of God, I tell you, this sermon probably confused the bejeebers out of you, and I, I completely get that. I, it's a lot of information. Take away this one thing. God wants you with him. Take away that. That God doesn't want you to find your joy in the flesh or your joy on this earth or your joy in your occupation or your school or your academics or your entertainment or whatever it is that you enjoy on this earth. This is not where real joy is. This is at best a temporary stopping place while you prepare for something that is permanent and perfect. This world God created was good. But the world he is creating for us there is perfect. And I hope, I hope you'll do what you need to do in order to experience it. I hope you'll, you'll live a life of expectation and excitement about going there. I hope you'll find yourself finding your joy in the infinite instead of the mortal. If you're not a child of God, I, I hope you'll become one. Because that's how you step out of mortal limitations and into eternity. And you'll see that more tonight if you come back and hear. Uh, if you're not a child of God and you need to be baptized into Christ, there's no better time than now. Please come forward as we stand and sing this song. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again and we pray God's blessings for you.